So, good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming to Pub Conversations. Uh, tonight, we are at the Spotted Dog on Warwick Street in Digbeth, Birmingham. Um, and thank you very much to John for letting us, uh, for hosting this event. It is wonderful venue. Um, I'd also like to thank, while I'm about it, Arts Council West Midlands and the Creative Alliance for making this activity possible. Um, a big welcome tonight to our speakers, Melanie, Carl, Allen, and Ross Birrell. Um, they're going to be having a public conversation. Uh, and I'm going to hand over to you guys to continue from here. Okay. Um, hello. And, um yeah, I'll just say that uh, I'm going to talk a bit about <clears throat> my work, just to give a little bit of an introduction. What's happened? And then um, sort of lead on from that as to how um, the reasons why I asked Ross to come do the talk with me. Um, he, just as a sort of... A, of context, he, I, he, Ross wrote the, an essay for this book that I did, um, A Journey Around the West Coast in Search of Tropical Scotland, and a lot of the things that he wrote in his essay really sort of helped me to understand what, I, what it was I was trying to do. <laughs> he sort of contextualised it really nicely um, by sort of um, focusing quite a lot on the palm tree and sort of how this sort of, and, this, and tropicality and... Um, um, sort of somewhere else and sort of histories and of places and gardens and I, I, I mean I can't really say it as articulately as Ross did but um, he sort of helped me to understand my own work quite nicely in the essay that he wrote um, I then found out like earlier this year that Ross was going to Cuba to make a piece of work um, and I, where I just, I just come back from Cuba on holiday because it was a place that I'd always been fascinated by um, Again, I've got some sort of interest in the tropics, and I don't know if there's reasons for it. But um, And he's made an actual piece of work there, um, a film and an installation piece. And so I thought it was a really nice connection between sort of a crossover of our work or of interests, you know, back, uh, around our work. But um, So I'm just going to give you a little bit of an introduction, a few, few images, sort of, um, I don't know, Touching on ideas around the palm tree, and this is a this is a stained glass window that my dad <laughs> put in the kitchen of our house when we were growing up when we were kids. Um, my father's from Goa in India, and he always talked about going back. He always talked about back home, and um, I was so I've always been fascinated by fascinated by this idea of back home and and what, where it was, and if it was a real place, how would you draw it, or how would you paint it, or how would you portray it, and is it a, re- a real place? And, and from then, from that, I go on to how do you depict a place that doesn't actually exist except for people's, through people's memories or emotions or ideas. Um, actually, these are, these are actually paintings of um, uh, a garden in Goa. Palm trees, again, with the lights on and the lights off. I mean, that just shows that it's always been, the palm tree's always been a subject matter that I've always been drawn to. Um, but going back to what I was saying before, that I, I sort of fell upon collage really as a way of trying to depict a non-existent place and sort of a combination of collage and watercolour. And start always starting with one image, like right on the horizon of this collage is a tiny little photograph of my father's beach, uh, the beach near my father's house in Goa. 
and it sort of ends up with a doorway right in the foreground of um, my boyfriend at the time, his hut in Scotland. And I like the idea of sort of trying to create an image of sort of, um, yeah, a place that only exists through our memory or our subconscious or whatever. So this is sort of the, that's the sort of background to these collage pieces that I was making for quite a long period. This is an image of Scotland, um, where all the, the all the plants and flowers and are come, have been taken from bed and breakfasts on a street in Edinburgh. Sort of trying to create this sort of tropical landscape out of the sort of um, somewhere that people wouldn't necessarily see it. So. But um, it's a very burnt out image, I'm afraid. But um, this was the, a lot. A lot of these images from this for this collage came from the piece of work that the book at the front depicted, the expedition in search of tropical Scotland. Um, this expedition was a journey that I made over a period of two years where I went travelling around the West Coast, drawing and painting the subtropical flora and palm trees that grow there in the manner of a 19th century explorer. And so a lot of these images came from that. Um, there's a hydroponicum up on the northwest coast of Scotland where they grow tropical um, fruit and plants. And it's, it's a system of hot water that goes through pipes and all these flowers grow out of it. And I like the idea that there's these hot water pipes going through the landscape and they're melting the snow and it's turning it into this tropical landscape. That's kind of, a, that's of what started to develop. I never have a preset idea when I start the collages. They, they, they grow themselves. And they, it's like a game of consequences. One a stream leads to the river, lead, you know, leads to the ocean and so on. They sort of grow themselves. Um, it's quite an early one. Um, with a, yeah. And this is um, this is a, an image of um, Plockton on the west coast of Scotland, which has got its own microclimate with palm trees growing there. And so when I first moved to Scotland, I was very, I was very sort of, I was very fascinated by the fact that there were palm trees growing there on the west coast and. Um, you know, I was looking for a way to make a piece of work about it, and that's when I started the ideas for this expedition. This is the route that I took around the, the west coast. Um, the sort of the basis for the route was really just people would tell me to go somewhere, or you must go there. That's where the Wigtown, um, the Wicker Man, was filmed, or you must go there. There were palm trees growing along the coast when I was a kid, going to Largs on my holidays, and so I just based the route. So I'm going to sort of flick through the pictures for the expedition because uh, I made some short films as well. <laughs> this is a still film. Um, and uh, as the journey sort of went on, it, you know, it started ostensibly as a sort of botanical drawing trip, but the sort of work sort of changed and became sort of a bit darker and the process of making the work sort of started to get... Um, become, uh, I don't know, started to direct the work as well. And also, just little connections. Um, this is uh, this is on egg, on the, um, which is known as the Tahiti of the Hebrides because of the, the rock formation there. But just sort of, um, it reminded me of... This is an image of Goa when I was growing up in India, but... What I'm trying to say is that going on this expedition started to bring to mind all these other memories and thoughts about places and identification with places and how we try and and how we try and identify and why am I travelling around Scotland and looking for palm trees and 
is it something to do with trying to align yourself with something? Um, another collage. Um, rhododendrons. I started to get snared up with rhododendrons when I was travelling around <laughs> Scotland as well, obviously. But, uh, um, this is a view on the west coast, which is supposed to be um, uh, landscaped in exactly the same way as a view overlooking the Himalayas in India. Um, and there's another connection there. Joseph Hooker was this Scottish explorer and plant hunter, and he brought all these um, rhododendrons back to Scotland and sort of tried to recreate Himalayan views and landscapes. Um, so I'm just sort of quite interested in that whole connection between pla- yeah, place and time and history and... This is uh, me discovering the Victoria Falls. There's a Victoria Falls on the west coast of Scotland. And um, there's also Victoria Falls in Livingston, Zambia, which is where I was born. And um, so that was another sort of strange coincidental connection that came up. Um, And Ross actually wrote something quite nice. I'll just read it. I mean, it's a quote from the diary that I kept when I was doing the expedition, which is... Gardens, plants, people and history are subject to time and other forces. And then Ross writes, It's a fugitive quality of these other forces, what they may be or where they may reside, which locates expedition as a cartography of collective terra incognita. It navigates the elusive ground upon which we attempt in vain to rehearse historical continuity and narrate fixed identity. He says, Cavallo's search for tropical Scotland is as elusive as Livingston's search for the source of the Nile, as elusive even as the source of the River Clyde, which flows through the region where David Livingston was born. And this was a book that I found in a tiny little bookshop on a tiny little island in the Hebrides. (laughs) So constantly... um, of a mind map that I was trying to, that I made at the time to try and make sense of it all. But, um, and this was a self-portrait that I made. Um, the whole, all the work was shown as a big sort of, um, like a sort of salon, I suppose, like a sort of 19th-century explorer would show their findings and give illustrated lectures. And I thought it was appropriate that there would be a portrait of the artist. Um, this is at East in Norwich last year. Sort of, these were some of the on-plan air studio drawings from the expedition it's another installation and then I've just got a few these are just um, some more recent little watercolours which sort of just show that how I'm sort of uh, continuing the idea of a journey and an expedition but sort of through using paint and becoming a more personal journey I suppose but trying to use the process of painting as a sort of way of depicting our conscious and subconscious experience of the world and so um, this is a mouth that becomes a cave and so on Um, anyway so that's the background to the work but um, I've just got some (laughs) images from when I went to Cuba my holiday snaps just to bring us on to Ross's, <laughs> Ross's p- uh, more serious uh, piece of work. Um, yeah, I just went to Cuba because it was somewhere that I, I actually went there just before Fidel stood down. Yeah. <laughs> Got back a day after he stepped down. And, um, so Ross was there a bit late. <laughs> I, never got, I never got to 
be there with Fidel. Um, but I was just, I don't know, I just quite, I quite like this, the moral of the revolution is to reach for the stars. And um, there was something, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know enough about what the situation is or was in Cuba, but there was something that I found very, had this really strange, benign sort of dictatorship sense. I don't know, that, that the, it was a revolution that was seemed to be based in idealism so strongly and that that idealism is still portrayed every is still forced people are sort of indoctr- indoctrinated with a sort of idea of a common good which is kind of really strange and that feeds through with the characteristics of, of the people that you meet there and um, it's just a sort of very unique place I mean this is the main front in Havana which is like you know the main boulevard and there's no advertising or it's just a concrete strip there's barely anyone there but um Sort of, sort of some strange communist Caribbean utopia or something I can't really describe it um, obviously it's not anymore but, well, um, but um, just some strange modernist architecture in a park um, this is a saber tree which is a it's, there's a voodoo religion in Cuba called Santeria which is I mean that's the other thing the sort of you know the sort of folk religion and or even Catholicism isn't uh, didn't seem to be repressed. Anyway, I don't know enough about it, but there's a lot of this um, sort of imbuement of, of magical powers in, in the plants and the trees and the vegetation there, which is something obviously I'm interested in. But this was a garden that I went to that had, that was a sort of voodoo garden. It was it was a it was a proper botanical garden where they had they had cultivated a lot of like thousands of different species of plants and um, they'd sort of introduced them from all over but and yet they would tie rags around them to beautify them and to keep spirits away from them so it was kind of um, put doll's heads on them um, it's just that diet kept a diary um, this is just a landscape view it just reminded me of a scene a sort of background painting uh, you know set painted landscapes um, the sort of tourist gift shop by the beach <laughs> where you can buy Gramsci books and um, <laughs> it was like this white sand beach stunning beach and sort of people drinking pina coladas and reading about racism and it's, for me that's like beautiful <laughs> but um <laughs> And the beaches were really undeveloped. Well, this, I mean, I, sp- I think there is a very developed side, but it reminded me of Scotland, actually. So there was that strange Caribbean-Scotland thing again. This is actually Barbados. I just sort of threw that in. There's an area in Barbados called the Scotland District. So that thing between tropicality and... Um, but it's called the Scotland District because it looks like Scotland. It's quite nice. They've got the palm trees going on. It's me hiking in the Scotland District. <laughs> this is um, Celia Sanchez, who is one of the leaders of the revolution, the Cuban Revolution. There was like the women had quite a, str- a, high, a strong part to play in the revolution. There were about three: Haiti Santa Maria and Celia Sanchez, and I think there was one other that kind of quite a prominent part of the revolution. But there's lots of. Um, cool photos of all the <laughs> rebels in the room. Yeah. 
um, you can't actually read that, but that's a supermarket in Cuba, then it says, Viva la Revolución, Viva Fidel, Patria Muerte, Venceremos, Death or this sort of, you know, country or death, we'll overcome. Sort of revolutionary um, um, script in sa- you know, sans text, just taped up above the crisps, which I think is really nice. <laughs> it's not what you'd get in your local Tesco. <laughs> anyway, that's my little introduction, but maybe Ross can <laughs> continue. Um, well, I just want I, I, there was um, there's something about I'm from uh, the west coast of Scotland, so when when Mel was on, I mean the. My first meeting with Mel was in, in the west coast of Scotland was when she was in residency at Cove Park, which is this uh, residency centre which overlooks Loch Long. And can everybody hear me okay? Because yeah. I've got quite a faint Scottish... <laughs> more volume, more volume. Okay, um, so uh, when I first met Mel, she was on residency in the, in the west coast of Scotland in the Cove Park, which... Uh, is a residency centre which overlooks Loch Long, which is this beautiful um, uh, landscape and Scottish Loch. The West, kind of, the, how you imagine the West Highlands, Scotland? Fine. The only kind of troubling element there is that there's the Coalport Nuclear Naval Base with a shoot to kill policy if you cross the boundary lines, I think. So, so it's a kind of interesting juxtaposition between the the um, I suppose the oh that collapses the the natural the landscape the the manufactured the, and the ideological and the and the um, the political I feel like so the so the the, the context in which uh, Mel was conducting I suppose a base for a research kind of was an interesting kind of. Had a, had a, the, the actual physical context had a duplicity and a duality and an unsta- instability of where you could claim to be residing, where you on an artistic retreat from society, or where actually where you actually p- placing yourself at the f- at the kind of front line of trident was stored underneath trident stored underneath and exactly yeah, yeah underneath yeah. Part, yeah well not quite but <laughs> almost yeah mm. so mm. when um, so when, when when Mel was doing the, the research and um, for this large scale project, really over a number of years, I think, because I think you applied to do it and it, the, the project was already under development. It was to yeah, I've been project. yeah, I've been doing it for a couple of years, but I had to take it in little stints because uh-huh. I didn't have a trust fund that I could yeah. do. <laughs> like other nineteenth century explorers, I didn't, uh-huh. I couldn't just go off. <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. and um, well, the, and. One 19, well, earlier, the 18th century explorer Alexander Humboldt comes back actually because H- Alexander Humboldt um, was a German explorer who went to uh, Mexico and South America but also went to Cuba and wrote a book on Cuba. And, and, and I'd referenced some of, I'd referenced yeah. an Alexander Humboldt. Uh, text on the on the the, the palm uh, in in the essay that I wrote for Mel, but what interested me was I'd I was I'd grown up in the kind of 
uh, industrial or post-industrial kind of uh, aftermath in the west coast of Scotland in a town outside of Glasgow in, in a town called Renfrew um, and uh, I'd gone on holiday with my family to the, obviously you know we're about 30 or 40 miles from the coast you go and you go to the west coast and you go to Lard and you go to Millport and you see the palm trees and you see these kind of things and and you kind of think very little of it because it's just pissing down with rain <laughs> and, and it's cold and it's wet and you don't think the, the idea of the tropics is the furthest from your mind but it was intriguing when Mel was writing about this because uh, for two reasons one because it, there was an element of nostalgia because she revisited or she or her journey to visit places made afforded me the opportunity to revisit some of my own kind of experiences and some of the visual images that I'd re- recalled through her work and on a personal level but secondly because the journey itself into the into the kind of I suppose a, a kind of underwritten area of Scottish I suppose geopolitics I suppose is not as too is putting it too strongly actually um it kind of started to me to look at uh, those very 18th and 19th century journeys made by S- Scottish writers, um, uh, but also kind of I suppose Northern or North American or Western European writers going to the region uh, of South America um, or the tropics and writing them in their own image. So that you would get people like Herman Melville's Taipei when he goes to Haiti, um, writing about glens and writing about, um, I suppose, mountainous landscapes that remind him of, of sort of the northern landscapes. Or Robert Louis Stevenson, more and more kind of a, a, a more focused case in point, where Stevenson would go to. Um, the Marquesas Islands, the same Marquesas Islands that uh, Gauguin had gone, uh, Gauguin would go to, and that uh, uh, Melville had been to a couple, uh, a decade or so before, um, and he would write about Highland hospitality. That that the, um, he would basically write the, the tropics as if it was Scotland, and this is in a sense that and and uh, um, so that your journey to the tropical Scotland was actually a kind of um, uh, a kind of mirroring in some respects of previous colonialist texts I mean that was kind of a conscious thing actually was to do a sort of inverse Inverse colonial journey journey, yeah yeah, because it was kind of part of the reason why I made this trip was I um, (coughs) stumbled across these botanical drawings that had been made in the and they were being shown at the Inverleaf House in Edinburgh and they were by an unknown Portuguese Indian artist and um, he had been commissioned by a Scotsman, and he and it was from a garden just outside Goa in southwest coast of India. But he was obviously Goan, but he was known as unknown Portuguese Indian, and um, and so it was kind of an homage to him. I thought, well, I want to, and they were amazing. These botanical drawings, they were very stylized. They weren't, I haven't got images of them, but they weren't um, like typical. Um, he was obviously a frustrated artists and they were kind of anyway but um I think I've got images of them have you yeah so I you so keep talking I'll find their images so uh 
yeah, so I wanted to make an homage and a sort of inverse journey and sort of a, a sequel to his drawings that he'd made of plants in southwest India commissioned by a, Scot- a Scotsman. I would make images of, of southwest Scotland. And it became a sort of anthropological journey as well when I went round the west coast, you know, um, and sort of have conversations with the, the natives. And, um, and also, it, it, I just also ended up, you end up touching on that whole... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, my yeah. brother's an environmental scientist, he's an, an ecologist, and and there's lots of talk about invasive spe- species and immigrant species and alien species, and so the palms and the rhododendrons are seen as alien species, and that all that sort of language and, and sort of what it means in relation to also immigration, and so so that kind of was a sort of subtext, but it's like a sort of but making these botanical drawings for me was kind of a a way of sort of making a sort of subtle and yet and kind of aesthetically pleasing <laughs> point. It, that was part of a, a part of it actually. Mm-hmm. What is Scotland? What is nationality? What is you know why why do landscapes? Why do we identify Scotland with having a certain kind of landscape? Why does the Scottish Tourist Board portray that as mm-hmm. Scottish when really? You know, the glens are a result of the clearances. Um, there's yeah. nothing native about oats. There's nothing native about sheep. And you know, there's all these sort of. Well, I mean, that's kind of like what I liked about the work was this, um, because botanical drawings are ob- observations and scientific observations, where by the the artist is, uh, uh, or the artistic subjectivity is kind of, I suppose. Um, uh, non-present yeah. there's no identity yeah. simply re- you're simply kind of a scientific researcher uncovering truths as they are empirically uh, yeah. uh, kind of made present to you by your journey and yet we all know that that is never the case anyway yeah. so it's kind of a nice format to use yes. to use that idea when, like when really it's not uh. ever true yeah. well, that, and that, that kind of um Inhabiting of a particular visual, um, uh, I suppose, apparatus of uh, perception, then the, the, the kind of inhabiting of that foregrounds the, the, the kind of the, I suppose, the, um, uh, uh, a kind of one, a kind of pointing to the fact that that scientific. Heritage is, is 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 problematic, but also, on the other hand, it's also beautiful, and it has its own aesthetic. Um, given the fact that there was an exhibition at the Botanic Gardens mm. and the, the Henry Nolte's publication on the mm. on the Dapuriata, so that there's a there is an aesthetic. Especially dimension through time, to it. once it's mm. once through history, then it, they become more beautiful. And, yeah. I suppose once they're removed from the the burden of having to evidence. Species or or whatever that they can be, you know they don't they don't no longer have to fulfil the task of being the record mm. of the plant, whatever they can they can function in their own as I suppose aesthetic objects in a I don't know a different market but um but I I, I kind of liked on the one hand that um, inhabiting of that and the and the and in a non, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm, it's a non-judgmental um, 
in my view anyway that there's a, there's a kind of allowing the thing to exist it's not a critical negative critical yeah. engagement with you know it's not propaganda no. <laughs> look at you know making a study it's like taking on the fact that there, there are great artists who were, who were doing those drawings but also um, that maybe the position from which those were drawn is no longer available and the, but what what position, what terra firma can we stand on to make those drawings anymore? And I think that was what I was interested in. Yeah. Um, a sort of postmodern. Yeah. Nah, no, postmodern is too too much of a critical <laughs> okay. term. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm being. Um, um, but it, are you do you want to talk a bit about your? I want to. No, I'm, defa- I'm, I'm postponing oh, that postponing as, far, as, as much as possible. Um, I want to tell you quickly about. <laughs> can I tell? Can I? Or do you want to carry on saying? No, no. I was going to talk about Renfrew, but there you go. No. Oh no, tell us about Renfrew. I was going to ask how your auntie Nelly is. Oh, uh, my auntie Nelly. Um, she's living in Boston. Yeah, um. mm. <laughs> so there's a. I talk about my auntie Nelly in this in my book. She's um she's a, a nun. Indian nun and she was expelled all my family were expelled by Idi Amin from Uganda and um, they all had British protected passports which meant that they didn't have anything at all really they were basically, a lot of the Indians were taken to Africa to work on the railways and so on which they all did and then there was this sort of weird divide and rule policy in East Africa so that you know, the, the black Africans would hate the Asians, and the Asians would hate. You know, you, you probably know it all. But anyway, so so the but the in, Asians were lured there with the promise they'd be given British passports, but they were given fake ones. So when they came to Britain, after Armin expelled them, they were only allowed in as refugee status. Anyway, this is long and boring. But my auntie Nelly has never ever had an, a nationality as a result. She's not. She, didn't, she couldn't get an Indian passport because Goa was Portuguese. She couldn't have a Portuguese passport because they couldn't find her mother's birth certificate. She couldn't have a British passport because she was only protected. Um, anyway, she so she, she was and, and she'd been she'd done amazing work. She was the first person. She was a pathologist. She was the first person to test blood for AIDS in Africa. She set up this AIDS clinic in Uganda. Um, but. Um, after Armin actually she went back but then she came to live in Renfrew she got retired and she was living in Renfrew in Glasgow sort of stateless unable to go anywhere or do anything and um, everybody in Renfrew is stateless <laughs> everyone in Renfrew. Yeah. yeah so she, so there's a there's a section in the diary about my stateless 70 um, year old auntie but happily she's now got British citizenship and she's moved to Boston because David Blunkett changed the law. It's a good one could think. Well, not probably did other good things as he did as Home Secretary. Is he repealed that law and a lot of the Asians that came with Armin finally got citizenship? But I thought it was quite interesting that she didn't have a nationality at all. Mm-hmm. It was quite nice. Well, not for her. She found it annoying because she couldn't go anywhere. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but do, I, mean, I, I found like reading the diary and then when you're talking about. Um, the journeys and then the kind of the kind of the dis- rather than place being focused, it was displacement that was always kind of returning and and that maybe the kind of the writing about Nelly Carvalho is a way of writing about yourself as well and yeah. and that um, 
and also the kind of I suppose the, the the inhabiting of botanical drawings in a sense of um, it being a another form it's not like the collages are so, I suppose is different but this kind of sense that they're allegories of displacement in a sense rather than I'd say the collages would do that more than mm-hmm. most in a way yeah yeah. But the kind of a diary, the diary structure, because the diary traditionally the diary is whereby where we access the the kind of coherent subjectivity of a unified kind of expressive person in a coherent fashion, the, the most intimate thoughts, whereby we can consolidate our. Like Adrian Mole. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, like yeah. You, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> I was thinking more like Samuel Pepys, but they, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's been like at a different Samuel level. Well. Uh, um, the magnum opus, but this, um, yeah. but that, but what you what you what you find is this constant deferral to other people. In there, in the yeah. diary, mm. I was trying to write it very objectively, so it was just mm. about what time I got up, what I ate, what I did. So everything else comes in as a subtext, really. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but, but now we've talked about Auntie Nelly. I'm going to meant to talk about. <laughs> all right, okay. Um, if that's all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the project that um, that Ross has done, I th- thought it was really kind of beautiful. It's this. It's um, it's based on this song, Quantana Mera which you may know. Should we play it now? This is a good point to play it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, which everyone knows is a sort of... How are we doing for time? Um, I don't know. We got, we've done about half an hour. Is that too quick, then? Or too slow? Whoa, whoa. Oh, stop. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, people think, I suppose think of this song as something that you just hear at maybe cheesy this is this is restaurants. This is cheesy. No. But apparently, which I didn't know, Quantanamera is based on a poem written by Jose Marti, which he was the um, original revolutionary that sort of who laid the foundations for um, the revolution the nineteen fifties revolution in Cuba. But he was from the nineteenth century, wasn't he? He's known as the grandfather of the revolution, is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you probably know more than me anyway, but um, maybe you should mm-hmm. carry on with um, uh, Well I suppose the the connection that continues is the palm tree because um, the um, one of the, the kind of po- the lines in the poem, which is the, the basis for the the kind of most ubiquitous Cuban song, Guantanamera, is uh, uh, about being from the land where the palm trees grow. Um, I have to s- say that the project that I kind of maybe talk about in relationship to this is. Um, a collaboration with myself and another artist called David Harding, and uh, we made we've made three films together now. But I'm actually this is half I'm halfway through. I got back from Havana last Thursday, and I'm halfway through the project because it's a split project between Havana and Miami, and um, I'm working with this other artist, David Harding, who. 
we've made three films um, the first one was on Walter Benjamin on the 65th anniversary of Walter Benjamin's suicide in Porbu in, in Catalonia on the French-Spanish border and the sec- we showed that in Kunsthalle Basel and uh, when we screened it, that film the night in a pub not dissimilar to this uh, we were invited after a few drinks asked if we wanted to make another film in, in Mexico in a place called Cuernavaca and the context was going to be Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano and Lowry obviously liverpudlian writer but um, complete alcoholic and sort of ex- self-exiled to uh, I suppose British Columbia but also to Mexico so we made a film in Cuernavaca and we, the title of the film was Cuernavaca and the subtitle of the film was A Journey in Search of Malcolm Lowry where we, we, we could have did this kind of spurious research journey whereby we retraced hmm? Plagiarism. Plagiarism, which was mainly influ- <laughs> a lot. The title was influenced by Mel's uh, <laughs> book, and um, so I'd kind of st- lifted the, of that kind of question, but also like research being some sort of journey, and our sort of uh, spurious kind of thing was that we would um, uh, retrace some of the, f- the footsteps of the character in the novel under the volcano. Um, the visit Popocatepetl, which is the volcano, which is the highest active volcano in Mexico, um, which is now you cannot go up, whatever, but we, we went up it. And then also try to have a seance with Malcolm Lowry's soul. So we got a, a, a sort of spiritualist slash witch doctor and made a film out of the kind of that and made a mural as well in Mexico. Um, so and out of that kind of um, those two films which were both in Spanish we were getting more involved in uh, I suppose like writers and the context of writing in relationship to site, in relationship to place uh, but also a kind of emphasis on translation making work within this kind of Spanish context and all with maybe a kind of politicised edge or political edge a lot of it coming out of my own research or David's research David's got a, um, a, a, a long standing interest in unaccom- the unaccompanied voice, the unaccompanied singer and he's got a, a long standing interest in Cuba and Cuban politics and Cuban history so when we were, when we were kind of looking at the third film we decided to make a film about not about Guantanamera but a film around the context of Guantanamera Guantanamera I remember my first encounter with Guantanamera is this, this singing it basically as a football song because you could change the lyrics from you know not from uh, Osoya Nombre Sincero but like there's only one Archie Gamel you know or there's only one Kenny Daglish you know and then anything could fit Guantanamera and which so the song has multiple identities and, and, and David knew it from Pete Seeger's 1963 recording in uh, I think Madison Square Garden or something like that which was global kind of poli- turned Guantanamera into a political song um, but the it has two identities still. There is the tourist, 
cliche Guantanamera which is sung you know at the drop of a hat and people refuse to sing it as well serious singers refuse to sing it because it's so ubiquitous but there's also Guantanamera as the living the kind of living newspaper song where each stanza is rewritten according to current political events current social events so it's in, a kind that's of that's like in Cuba in Cuba yeah oh, so there's so you get a kind of rap version Oh, so people that. can talk about their, their particular locality through the song mm. or the political song. So the song has this kind of thing. So we, what we, what we did was, we, um, and Glasgow is also twinned with Havana. So we kind of gave us some sort of rationale to kind of go and to kind of do it. So, th- so there's a kind of multifaceted kind of aspect to it. But the central idea was to go to go to uh, Cuba, record, um, well, two two prongs. Go to Cuba, record an unaccompanied version of Guantanamera, broadcast it on the radio there, um, because radio has this kind of has this historic role in, 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 in the kind of dissemination of uh, the kind of the revolution I suppose Castro's broadcast on Radio, radio Rebelde and from the Sierra Maestra you know so the radio has this kind of vitally important whereas Cuban television is shit Cuban radio actually still has uh, an element of proper cultural in, in, interrogation Cuban radio and then do the same in Miami. So next month we go to Miami, we record a singer in Miami and record it on an, uh, Maya, uh, unaccompanied, and then broadcast it on Radio Marty. Radio Marty uh, is the was set up by the CIA and Ronald Reagan to broadcast propaganda, very common propaganda, from the American perspective of Strangely Cuba. Strangely called it Radio Marty. Well, Why this is, yeah. So who, the, the reason, I mean, Jose Marty whose verses sincilos, the simple verses, one of the one of which forms the basis of the lyric the original lyrics for Guantanamera, which was recorded originally by uh, or put to music by uh, 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 Josito Fernandez in the thirties, that Marty was a nationalist revolutionary, born in eighteen fifty three and uh, died in the, his kind of he mounted the revolution in the 1890s against, died the, against the Spanish in 1895 was killed he was an academic poet exiled at the, you know charged at the age of 16 17 for being a revolu- being a counter kind of uh, uh, colonialist anti uh, he was a nationalist kind of writer but also never self-proclaimed socialist but also with a very left, le- liberal, left-leaning, democratic kind of ethic to his revolutionary kind of uh, uh, writings, he's claimed by the communist revolution in Cuba and also the Miami, or principally Miami, but there's a wide diaspora of Cubans and and by the exiled Cubans abroad, if you like. So anti. He's claimed by both the left and right. So that that's why we were interested at this, I suppose, moment in time. Anyway, within Cuban history, you went when Fidel was still there. Eh? We didn't. We managed <laughs> to miss it. We wanted. We were hoping that he would die when we were there. So no. Uh, he uh, so sat down that day after I got back. I know. I know. It's 
bad timing. But um, so so that we uh, so that we went on the one hand to kind of I suppose to record the context of Marty in, in Havana and beyond. And we changed the original idea. Was the original idea was to record the singing in Maya in 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 Havana, but Guajira uh, Guantanamera is the the lyric is Guajira Guantanamera, which is the woman of Guantanamo. It's a love song. So, um, given the the kind of the context of Guantanamo and Guantanamo Bay, and the um, we decided that we wanted to record the version for the installation in Guantanamo so that was a kind of long roundabout journey and then we would go to Havana with some certain things to do with in relationship to Havana and the, the context there with, the, with the, the memorials and the monuments and the statues and stuff the presence of, the presence of Marty far outstrips the presence of Castro you go to, I don't know if anybody's been to Havana um it's Jose Marti Airport, isn't it? Jose Marti Airport, and it's uh, there's there's maybe two billboards of Castro. One one of them playing baseball, you know. And uh, he was really good at baseball. He too. was shit at baseball. Was he? But, you know, he was good at baseball. All Cubans are good at baseball. Yeah. Um, in the way that all Scottish people are good at football. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and he's che. only he's only equal by Shea. Yeah. So there's only Che. Apparently it's Che. Che, it's Che, yeah. I got told off in Cuba. No, it's Che, yeah. So. But there is the cheesy Guantanamera. So I'm going to play you the cheesy Guantanamera. We arrived and we but were... I don't think that... I didn't, like, when I was there, that it didn't seem cheesy because everyone... Mm. Because everything is kind of so grassroots anyway. Everything's acoustic or, you know, it's yeah. like everything's lo-fi. It's kind of everything's back to basics. It didn't... It's, and this is lo-fi, this is just recorded on a digital And camera, everyone has a beautiful voice and has an amazing musicianship, so... No, it's, um, it's definitely an experience in terms of... Uh, so even... The, I mean, I haven't seen the, the quality the cheesiest songs, they sound beautiful. Yeah, really. but there's a lot, yeah. Well... Yeah. <laughs> but this is on the Malacon, this is just outside. Um, in the background you can see, but yeah, to the right actually, is... Um, Hotel Riviera, which is Meyer Lansky's hotel that he built in '58 and was uh, taken over, obviously, quite very quickly in '59. But it's uh, Meyer Lansky's the guy in The Godfather who's played by Lee Strasberg and sort of stuff that's killed by uh, Al Pacino's henchman in the airport. You know, the Jewish mafia from Miami. So. We were in this kind of my, this kind of exclusive hotel con- context. Right across from that is the Malacon, where if you sit in the Malacon for any length of time, you get approached by two guys waiting to sing you a song. And the first song they sang me was Guantanamera. They didn't know that that's why I'd gone to what well, I'd <laughs> gone to record. Um, so, but anyway, I'll play you this version and I'll show you some. I haven't got the. Um, Shame, you've got the acapella. I haven't yeah. got the acapella version or the, or the or the other version that we recorded live, but we have and this, uh, but I've got stills to show you the kind of the idea that we would maybe use, but I'll play you this anyway because it's a nice musical interlude. <laughs>
We're going to clean it with ours. It's not negotiable. Scotland and Cuba. Did you hear that he the lyrics? No, did you know did they have no Spanish? No, but I was gonna ask it. It was that the local current version of it. No, that yeah, was an improvised of. version for me, because uh, they'd asked me where I was from, so I was from Scotland. And they'd they played it just before and uh my camera was a bit too I kinda hadn't got my camera in my bag, so I said, I'll give you two dollars if you play it again. And uh, so they played it again. So the lines are, you know, you're going to pay me two dollars for this version, <laughs> and, it's, it's and it's non-negotiable. <laughs> and then it's all Scotland and Cuba. <laughs> so there's a kind of five So I mean, <laughs> totally. I mean, it's it's so malleable <laughs> a, a, a format, you know. And you get there is the Marty version that everybody knows. You can get, uh, they could uh, give them anything you want in the right, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, but there is the Jose Marty version, which is the original version, which everybody knows. Uh, all the singers know, all the musicians know, and that's the that's the um, you know you grew up knowing that you grew up knowing the verses sincerely, so you grew up knowing that kind of lyric. So the deviations from it are so evident that because um, we recorded. Um, uh, I'll skip this. I'll skip a lot of the kind of stuff because I've talked about it. But um, so, but that's from the the event, eventual uh, in January next year. We're going to do a, uh, an installation in CCA because January will be the fiftieth anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, and th- this is the. They have the Cuban side of it we've got to record the Miami side of it but this will be the eventual installation that's the Hotel Riviera that's it in the uh, what 62 61 Bay of Pigs sort of uh, year of they thought that when the Bay of Pigs happened in the, in the in the on the south coast they were still expecting sort of invasion in the north that's a, a sea without boats because uh, until very recently you weren't allowed to have sailing boats in the north coast of Havana because people were just launching themselves off and driving off. If they had enough petrol, enough uh, fuel, they could get to Miami. It's only 95 kilometres to QS, so that's Malacon. These are just some images that... Um, there was myself, David, who were making the film, Hugh Watt, who took this photograph, and a couple of other ones, who is our cameraman, sort of photographer, documenter. There was Sandy Moffat, Alexander Moffat, who's a kind of an old Scottish painter who was doing drawings and then Antonio uh, who was our fixer who's a Cuban national living who's got a dual passport um, uh, Cuban and UK passport and lives in Glasgow and he's got this he's got children in Cuba he's not a defector or an exile he just he's allowed 
to to live abroad and send money back. So I think he's but he's a he's a complete capitalist, <laughs> and uh, you know he uh, he's basically like when you go back to his hometown, he's like the local mafia don. He basically goes round and you know ruffles the hair of all the young children because you could be the father of any one of them. You know. Um, so when you arrive, basically, you're immediately say, say kind of like John Lennon. Jose Marti is the John Lennon of, yeah. you know, Jose yeah. Marti Havana. It's not Castro. It's not, you know, it's... it's che, the cult of Che is pretty, yeah, pretty big. definitely. But, I mean... He's you, more like Jesus Christ, though, isn't he, everywhere? That's his, they, they still that's are his role. Jesus Christ, because Catholicism is yeah. tempered and allowed. And yeah, the Pope went and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, in terms of, like, iconography, Che is, yeah. like, the... Yeah, the, sta- yeah. the statues too—they're all, they're all awful to both of them. But I mean, but definitely, you no. Know, she is, um, she is. Uh, I mean, more people know about Che, which is mm. kind of why we 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 didn't focus on him in this yeah, yeah. context. But um, see, that's—I mean, you think a huge statue—that's a, a little kind of two-inch maquette to um, figurine in the Museum de la Revolution. Um, but yeah, so it's. Basically, if you go around, the imagery is always Jose Marti, the guy in the dinner suit, uh, who got shot while wearing a dinner suit on a horse, you know, um, and Che Guevara, the two martyrs of the revolution. Um, Castro is not present. That's a self-portrait by Jose Marti. Following electroshock therapy. Looks <laughs> 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 like sort of um, Arto. It looks like Arto, yeah, definitely that kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, this is one because one of the conversations I'd met Mel, but maybe a, well, I'd gone down. We'd 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 applied for prop full uh, to the consulate, full visas to make the film, and the the bureaucracy and administration is so slow. We had to, like two days, three days to go before we left, and still no visas. So I took the sleeper down from Glasgow to London and got the visa, got tourist visas, so they had no permission to film anything. Um, and met Mel and had kind of a chat and you were talking about that you were going to do a self-portrait I wanted to curate a self-portrait exhibition yeah so this would be so that I got to that for you oh thank you yeah that'd be fantastic um he's got a terrible he can't draw ears (laughs) there's quite interesting thing about the Cuban revolution though isn't it that that whole sort of very cultural aesthetically pleasing you know it was as if they had a Rolling Stone photographer holed up in the yeah. in the Sierra Maestro with them because they all look from hot magazine, and they're yeah, all wearing yeah. combats and they're all young and they're all you know there's this kind of weird beautiful aesthetic to the whole thing isn't there there's a photograph that I haven't included which is a photograph after the um, the attack on the Moncada the failed Moncada barracks attack uh, Castro was in prison for 12 years or sentenced for 12 years and there's a photograph of Castro in his prison cell with a, behind him is a pile of books you know like Che Guevara, Castro I mean Castro was a trained lawyer Che Guevara yeah. was a medic um, and every town there's a casa de, uh, it's a house of culture you know, yeah. it, it, it's a house of culture and, and poetry, imagery you know, art, music I mean, is so the, central. I went to the contemporary. Did you get to go to the fine no, art I museum? Didn't I went to the fine art museum when I was in Havana. Oh, I was did, expecting yeah. to see, you know, kind of controlled, you know, a sort of a communist, you know, fine art museum. I thought, but it was, it was the most amazing. I was completely shocked. It was the work was really a uh, kind of 
you know, a lot of sort of fantasy, or a lot of, it was kind of quite out there, like quite. Mm. Um, Maybe. Interesting. Art, there's a like really. <laughs> a little bit like that. But there is a kind of really strong, you know, this sort of cultural and artistic side to sort of. that seems to be part of the fabric of the place. There's no. Um, but you go to the main museum, the, collect, the national collection, and there's no catalogue for the national collection. It's sort of yeah, there's no catalogue in the fine art museum the, the, You don't get a sense of the... Although it's so embedded in everyday life, you don't get a sense that it's um, there to be exported. Yeah. You know, this is. So we went to. We did the screening of the the Benjamin film that I mentioned. We did a screening of it in the Institute dell'Arte Superior, uh, or the Institute Superior dell'Arte. And this is. We went around the studios, and this is by a young artist. So Jose Marti. This is you know Marti sell portrait. This is his house. Blah blah museum. But this is him used as an image in a ceramic by. A, a, well, it's an awful piece of work, but I mean it's. It's well, it's so ghastly. It's actually, you know, interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's a frog, yeah, the, frog, the toad, kind of, the and frog, the toadstools yeah. and coming out of his neck, and that's but only a detail. You can see that freeze country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the official representation is this. This is the Marty Monument, 129 meters high, highest structure in in, in Cuba, um, bar buildings. Um, you know, so it's and the revolution. This is Revolutionary Plaza. So this is Marty Memorial. Behind it is, uh, well, that's the Ministry of Justice, uh, Ministry of the Interior. Behind it, not the one on the left, but the other one is Castro's uh, offices, or as well now Raúl's. But um, so it's this is a kind of central revolutionary hub, and Marty is the the kind of primary focus and the point where which you you can look out to the rest of Havana from as well. Um, but you're not allowed to we had to do some surreptitious filming. We're not allowed to film we weren't allowed to film there. Um, the guy these guys kind of usher you on. Um, they've got Jose in the museum the underneath this is a museum and they've got like Jose Marty's gun from when he was Kind of invasion, and then when Jose Marti landed, he was in. He, he, he left Cuba, went to Mexico, went to kind of Guatemala, went to New York, and lived in New York for 14 years or so. And then he mounted, he went to Florida, and then built up a revolutionary party, and then came back to invade Cuba under when it was under Spanish rule. And he landed in Plaitas, and this is the only kind of one of the other kind of images of Castro around is this is Castro at Plaitas, at the spot where he landed, doing this kind of memorial, kind of performance art gesture, really kind of uh, uh, some sort of uh, living monument. So this is just the evidence, the evidence that kind of Jose Marti is everywhere. Um, this is the Marti in the Capitolo, which used to be the government. And now it's a kind of culture house. This is a bibliotheque, uh, Marty. But one of the, I suppose, the most recent kind of constructions of a Marty identity is after the Elian. You know, the little boy who was whose mother and stepfather tried to flee to from Cuba to Miami. Quite recently. Uh, quite recently, yeah, five years ago or so, drowned at sea, sort of thing. But the boy was picked up. Taken to Miami, Kerr, it sort of became a big sort of international row, didn't it? Between yeah, two between countries. two countries, yeah. and then the father who was in Cuba got him back, sort of thing. But this is Jose Marti holding Elian, 
you know, in Demonstration Plaza, where the old youth rallies, and this is right next to the House of American. This is the only building in Cu- private ownership in Cuba, just incidentally, because the, the person funded the party so much they allowed him to keep his building. So this is uh, this is the same. This is this the other side of it. Party. This is the sort of stuff you saw on the. Print out in the supermarket. Print out in the supermarket. This is it writ large for state effect. I mean, it's written everywhere, but it's just quite nice. It's you're reminded yeah. of it while you're shopping. So basically, this is the um, the building in the background is the House of American Interests, and basically, when they constructed that, Castro ordered that all these flagpoles would be put in front to obscure the LED display, which is basically American propaganda and very comments and uh, how can they allow having that there because there's such an influx of there's um, money coming in from Cuban living in America and there's people you can you're allowed to apply to get a visa to go out to get to get out of Cuba you go in and you but put your case how can the Cubans allow this building how can it's like a well I mean it's it's a kind of contentious one. It's probably as con- it's not as contentious as Guantanamo Bay, but it's. I think there's so much traffic between the two. But Gu- Guantanamo Bay is rented by the Americans, isn't it, off the Cubans? Although well, Fidel yeah, wouldn't the, cash the checks. Yeah, he didn't cash the checks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that that's a kind of yeah from the 30s to revolt that, but it's still gone on. But um, yeah, it's that is um because there's so many uh, people applying to leave, but also people applying for. You know, as opposed to visiting rights, people, right, to come, okay. people want to come back in because Bush prevented after right. around about the Jose Marti radio station, they prevented people, um, uh, Castro prevented people leaving or people coming back, and then that that has sort of mellowed a little bit and there's more kind of through line. So you do need some sort of kind of yeah, yeah, physical yeah. manifestation of yeah. of that. It's quite funny. So we went. We, we, we were there. We went to film the 40th anniversary of the Young Communist Party, and that's just somebody's cut out the banner too, so they could see. And again, Jose Marti's sort of present. And this is Viva la Revolution. Uh, the, the speeches are all Viva la Revolution, Marti. Viva la Revolution. The kind of mantras are kind of he's still there in the contemporary rhetoric. And uh, I. I so when you record a singer in Miami singing the same song, is there going to be a completely different slant to it? Well, that's the thing. There's the, 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 the Miami thing will be just the singer, I think, unless we find that a film emerges from that. And are they both going to be singing the original lyrics? They're not going to be making their own They're lyrics. going to be singing whatever they want to sing. Okay. They're not singing necessarily the Jose okay. Marti version, but they can sing whatever they want to distance it from the kind of tourist sort of thing right. and then broadcast it on the radio station when we want to get Jose Marti radio um, so this is just us going to Guantanamo the, the Guantanamo actually has a tourist bar, you know tourist board it's the pits don't ever go unless you're taken there in unless you're taken yeah, yeah unless, <laughs> you, unless you go to Camp Exley <laughs> and then it's like lovely mm-hmm. you know um, but in the town hall in Guantanamo 
Socialism or dance. Socialism or death. It's a, a bit extreme. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll show you an image later on in Havana. This is, you know, this is illegal money changing. This is again. So then we recorded in the, we recorded a singer from the House of Shangri, the Casa de Shangri. Shangri is a, a regional. Cuban form of music which mixes African rhythms. A, uh, a lot of Cuban music mixes African rhythms, but they, they've mixed a particular kind of version and they've got a whole centre dedicated to that regional music. What's so it called? Shangui. 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 And, um, so this is a band, a local band that had toured Europe and everything like that. So he, they're quite prominent and, and well known. And he agreed to kind of sing. So for our kind of our installation, we're kind of large screen with the two two singers kind of face each other. But um, so this is basically some stills from the, and then this is him with the full band, which we'll use in the installation. And then we're going to press a double A side vinyl record with the two <coughs> two a cappella versions. So a singer from Miami and a singer from Havana, singer Havana yeah. and the two double A sides. So then he so we recorded an a cappella version in the sugarcane field. And uh, and and this is where we got into trouble with um, the local commissar. Um, where I think if you basically we had no visa to film, we had no permissions to film. And as soon as you're when you're in Havana, it's okay because there's so many tourists. But when you're in Guantanamo, there are precious few tourists. There are a few Chinese and some French. And um, basically, they're, they're there on conferences because they've been sent there by various administrative bodies. So there's there's very little kind of tourists. Um, so any any sort of tourist is not a tourist. Any tourist is a journalist. Any tourist is a is a potential sort of subversive voice, kind of uh, investigating conditions or whatever uh, under the guise of tourists. So we recorded this. Um, in the sugarcane field, but um, basically because there were two cars parked in the middle of nowhere, side by side, pulled up against the side, and it looked a bit suspicious. So a policeman got involved, and then he went and got the local commissar, which is basically like the not the FBI, not the CIA, the FBI kind of a local FBI agent, local kind of investigative criminal investigation rather than any kind of uh, sort of the espionage but they so they kind of came across us when we were doing the recording and took down uh, Andreas's name and also oh, really? Antonio's name and the the kind of the uh, the eventuality of that was that um, the kind of level of I mean in Havana if I can find it well I'll find it later on but in in Guantanamo it's socialism or death. Okay. In Havana, they've let the trees grow over the death part, so it's just socialism or nature, <laughs> you know. So which is okay, but so and he was socialism and nature. Socialism and nature, not socialism or. So we were. Um, he was very worried about doing the whole recording, but uh, anyway. 
when we got back to the hotel we were told not to leave the hotel we had to hide the film we had to record another impromptu version in the hotel room so that we could hide the film in case it got seized he would still have what they would seize would be the the impromptu version of the hotel room and not the one recorded um, but is he going to be is his life going to be affected now because of that is well it's ok we've found right. out that mm-hmm. it's nothing's happened so far but the, the, the level of paranoia kind mm. of is, is kind of evident from that we were just like no, they're not going to do anything, you know. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that we'll bring Andreas back to Glasgow when we do the screening. So we had to leave Guantanamo a day early and we went to Santiago. And this is Marty's mausoleum in Santiago. And this is the elaborate kind of flag-folding ritual that they do. This is the Mancada barracks. This is the reconstructions of the, um, the bullet holes where Castro's troops small rebel band fired on the Makada barracks uh, Batista plastered them all up again and when after 1959 Castro chipped them all out again and reconstructed them all you know. and then we did the worst road movie ever from uh, Santiago to Havana, back to Havana following uh, after 59 when Che and, and, and uh, the others had taken over from uh, Santa Clara to Havana and the road was opened up uh, Castro made this kind of journey back to Havana so we kind of redid that journey past past Santa Clara and the Che uh, mausoleum this is just a a poster in Dundee that I kind of saw when we were making the application this is uh, the only two things that are left in Che's identity is not revolutionary communist or whatever guerrilla fighter but fashion accessory and murderer um, that's just that's the ugliest building in Havana guess what it is what any guesses what the building there is yeah. Gre- grain silo what it's the Soviet embassy is it yeah <laughs> It looks like a figure. It looks like a transformer, yeah, you know, transformer, a robot. Yeah. 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 So that's in uh, Miramar, which is next event. This is socialism or nature. Right, yeah. yeah. Socialism or nature. <laughs> that's the, when you leave the Malacan, you go into Miramar and then Buena Vista, that's it. So when we get back to Havana, we basically transferred the stuff onto CD and then went to a local radio station. And all the radios stay owned, all the radios completely controlled. You, there's no... Um, uh, the guy that we were working with, Antonio, the guy who lives in Glasgow but lives in Cuba as well, was saying, you can go but you won't get anywhere. Just forget about it. There's no way that you're going to get this broadcast on the radio. You'll go to the radio station and they'll say, well, who are you? Uh, well, we'll pass it up the, the, the line, down the line to our superiors and they'll make a decision. And then, and I'm saying, well, we're only asking them to play the most famous Cuban song ever how can it be objected to you know it's not going to cause any disruption in the infrastructure of the communist state he said well you know these guys are just completely paranoid there's no free press so there's no free press there's no right to publish anything there's no right to broadcast anything and uh, the idea was to put, to, to pro- first of all broadcast it on Radio Havana and then so we would, which is the main one and then do the other one in Miami on Radio Marty but we decided, we, we contacted Radio Havana and they weren't going to do it. So we went to the next radio station down and we walked in and talked to this guy on the left, Ernesto, and he just went, yeah, 
Yeah. Which, what was the name of this one? This is, uh, uh, the, the radio station is Proposito. Proposito. Pro- proposi- proposi- proposition, proposition, which is a cultural politics uh, current affairs programme, and he's the presenter. What context did he play it then? He played it in, uh, um, after Super Trump. He presented it. You know, he said, um, and "Next, we have." Well, he, he we, um, well, you don't need the images. You the images. He said, "Well, well, because he could speak English." He was saying, "Actually, the um, the current debate this time is uh, for this week is is regional identity and." Um, kind of Caribbean regional identity so the Shangri music and the kind of no, nothing coming from Havana but coming from Guantanamo is right, perfectly yeah. kind of uh, um, valid. valid and interesting how Supertramp features in that I have no <laughs> idea but um, which Supertramp? Oh, I, I, I don't know the title <laughs> but I mean I, could, I don't want to even hum it to you no, I don't. I couldn't sing it, um, but I know what it is. Everybody knows what it is. But it's the No, was it? Is that one? Anyway. Probably. Yeah, I'll hum it to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and um, so he was taking that. So he introduced it as a recording by a uh, singer from Guantanamo, recorded by Ross Perot and David Harding. So it was introduced properly and then played. But what he didn't know um, was that we played the version from the hotel, the version that was recorded under duress, the kind of renegade version that was the paranoid version, because we decided to, to broadcast the one that was the decoy for the police. So Protect the other guy. To, well, he didn't want that one used in the context of the installation, because basically he was making... It, he recorded the, 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 the kind of living newspaper one about... Santiago and about the kind of the con- current kind of issues. I mean, he's not he's a kind of hardline communist, but he's not so he's not kind of critical of the state. He just fears the state. Um, the one in the hotel room was so to- totally innocuous. It was about sugarcane and about El Sa- the Hotel Salvador, which is where we were. So the do they always improvise then? Is it the improvise? The improvise. And he improvised like that. So we, rec- we, we played that version, so the, the broadcaster was kind of going, that's a really boring version, you know, and we're going, exactly, he's trying not to draw attention to anything that's completely, it's supposed to be asinine or saccharine and sweet, so we kind of had this double narrative going on with that, so that the, that's kind of, so we are just freshly kind of back from doing that, we're only halfway through the project, but... Um, there's a kind of when Mel was saying that she'd been to Cuba or going to Cuba, that I thought that was something because it had been two, three years something since we'd kind of met really, and you'd done the the journey through Scotland and written up and we'd worked on you'd done the book and I'd written for that and then here was a and you'd done about you'd kind of drawn attention to the fact that there was this kind of Scottish version of. Kind of in in in, uh, in Barbados. And Barbados, Scotland district, yeah. So th- this was my, f- I mean, eventual trip to the Caribbean. But um, okay, they never sang about Archie Gemmel, but I mean, it was <laughs> kind of still a Scottish dimension in the sense of that when we go back, we'll play it in Glasgow in the in this kind of 
ongoing Glasgow's fun with Havana, but there's an ongoing solidarity with kind of Scottish socialism in Glasgow and in Glasgow and, uh, and and Cuba as well. But there just seemed to be something kind of uh, interesting about this. They kind of not only about you going to Cuba and I going to Cuba, but also about Cuba itself being. But now is the time to go to Cuba because it was in the stage of transition potentially. I mean, while we were while you were there, Castro goes, and while we were there, the new reforms are being ushered in. And it's, it's an enigma. It's a, a, the place, isn't it, as well? So that's yeah. kind of something that. Um, right. Yes, yeah. sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Can I need a pee? Yeah. <laughs> that was just went on the podcast. <laughs>